Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to our special program series of AccessibleWorld.org. And what would it be without our dear friend and scholar, Ira Fistel? And his topic tonight, and the date, of course, is uh, Wednesday, March 26, 2014, just for the record. His topic, My Adventures in the World of Music. So without further ado, Ira, the program is yours, and a very big welcome. Okay, thank you, Bob. Uh, this is something unlike anything I've ever done on this Accessible World series. Uh, usually I am giving talks about facts or about history or about something, but tonight I'm just going to talk about me. Um, this is a kind of a semi-autobiographical piece called My Adventures in the World of Music. And I hope you're interested. <laughs> uh, feel free to uh, just bug out <laughs> if you don't care to listen. But anyway, I hope we'll make it interesting for you. Uh, beginning, well, I uh, was lucky enough to have a couple of musical parents. My father came from Denver, Colorado, and uh, grew up there after, was born in Pennsylvania, but grew up in Colorado. And he became a violinist. Now, he wasn't a professional musician, but he was a pretty good amateur. And he also, at uh, some time, went beyond the violin and learned a little bit about conducting. And during the Depression, he got an appointment as a conductor of a Works Progress Administration Orchestra, WPA Orchestra, which was a, uh, you know, one of those uh, jobs that the government created for musicians who were out of work. And he was the conductor for a while. My mother, who grew up in Chicago, was a professional musician. She got a degree from the Chicago College of Music and taught piano for many, many years. Uh, she started teaching the piano when I think she was still a teenager, and certainly she taught for the years before I was born and then for some years after I was born. So she did play the piano and also began her career, and this is fun, playing the piano in one of the old-time movie houses that uh, had silent movies and they had a piano accompaniment. And she was the pianist who had to come up with the music to fit what was going on on the screen. Uh, what do they call those? The Nickelodeon. Uh, she, she was the pianist at the Nickelodeon. She tells stories about uh, having no um, heat uh, where she was practicing. She'd practice with gloves on because uh, her hands got so cold. They didn't have anything. You know, the family had about seven kids and um, no money. So she was earning something as a teenager to uh, help out the family and to help herself. So anyway, both of them played. They met in 1934 at the World uh, Fair in Chicago, the Century of Progress. My father came from Denver because there were no jobs in Denver. Professionally, he was a teacher. He had a degree in chemistry, and he also taught mathematics. But uh, in Denver, he was getting paid with scrip. That is to say, uh, we'll pay you back 
sometime when we have some money. Well, that didn't uh, support anybody. And he gave up on Denver as a place to get a job and thought, maybe at the World's Fairs in Chicago, I can pick something up there. And that's when he came to Chicago and met my mother. It took them seven years before they got married and I was born because it was the Depression and nobody had any money and nobody could have kids because he couldn't afford it. But meanwhile, my father did land some part-time jobs. And then towards about 1940, he was working for an old man who owned a music store. And the old man died. And my father took advantage of his experience in music and bought the business from the old man's estate and went into business for himself. And it turned out he was a terrific businessman. My father was very smart and had a terrifically quick, agile mind. And he could learn things easily and he could uh, take advantage of situations. And he did. And he stayed in the music business for the rest of his life. Uh, he was dealing in musical instruments. And uh, oh, this is a sideline. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about really tonight. But he became a Fender dealer just in time for the great rock and roll revolution that uh, happened in the early 60s. And if you wanted a Fender guitar or a Fender amp or a Fender bass, there were only about two places in Chicago you could get them and one of them was from my father's store. So uh, that that kind of uh, put him on a different level in the, in, the, in the music business. All the great Chicago blues musicians were my father's customers. And if I'd had a bone of a brain uh, in my head, I would have held on to the store after he died and turned it into a blues museum. Never occurred to me. I even knew some of those guys. Uh, all the great blues musicians, um, Howlin' Wolf, and uh, if you ever wanted to know how he got his name, all you had to do was listen to him. He was <laughs> he was something else. Uh, Muddy Waters, um, Magic Sam, Sam Lay, Peter Paul Butterfield, all were, all of them were my father's customers. And as you know, Chicago was the great blues uh, center in the '60s. So anyway, those were my parents. When I was a little kid, they would my mother would put the record player on, and we had um, Tubby the Tuba and Jeannie the Magic Record, you know, kids' records. But in between those, she'd put classical recordings on. <coughs> and to this day, I can still tell you what the label looked like on the Dvorak Ninth Symphony. <laughs> it was a green and gold label and of course there were about eight records in the series because these were all um, was before uh, long playing records and uh, the phonograph would go click 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 and the, the record would drop and then three minutes of music and then click 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 and another record would drop so that was the Dvorak Ninth and I got to know that very well when I was a very small child along with a lot of other pieces of music we had a recording of the Brahms First Symphony with Arturo Toscanini's picture on the cover. You know, I, you know, I remember all this stuff from way back. I must have been four years old or something like that. So I uh, had a musical ear from the beginning. I think I probably inherited that. 
Well, my mother started taking me to children's concerts. I think um, you had to be four years old before you could go. And I think she probably took me the day after I turned four or something like that. I remember at Orchestra Hall in Chicago in those days, this was 1945 or so, just right after the war ended, I guess. And what I remember about the hall, and you're going to laugh at this, the exit lamps were still lit by gas. And the gas flames would... um, you know, flicker behind the word E-X-I-T. <laughs> I got a terrific kick out of that. Uh, you know, who had uh, gas lamps as late as 1945? Anyway, those concerts and the records and the, the musical atmosphere in the house, my parents played duets and they played trios all the time with another friend who played the cello. And those sessions, uh, I think, really attuned me to idea of listening to music. My aunt died when I was four years old, and my mother told me that we can't play any music on the radio or the or the uh, records for a whole year. And I know I will re- can tell you what I said, the very words I said. I still remember it. But mother, I can't live without music. And I meant it. And uh, we did have music during that following year. <laughs> she didn't enforce any ban on, on music. Well, she wanted to teach me to, be, to play the piano. and She started me very young. There was a problem, however. I couldn't play. Uh, I never learned to really read music properly. Well, that was a big mistake. She should have tried to teach me to read music rather than play music. Because I happened to be... Well, probably one of the world's least coordinated people. I have no hand-eye coordination whatsoever. That's why I couldn't. I could never catch a ball. I couldn't run very well. Uh, I couldn't do anything. And it's been my great luck over the years that I could talk for a living and write for a living because those things I could do. If I'd ever had to use my hands to do anything, I would have starved. I have no coordination. <laughs> I knew, um, I fell in love with baseball when I was a very small kid. I was about seven or eight years old when I began to realize what baseball was. And I'd love to have played baseball. But I knew when I was that age that I would never be able to play because I, I couldn't catch a ball. I couldn't throw a ball. I couldn't swing a bat. I couldn't hit a ball. I couldn't hit anything. I couldn't do anything. So I realized that the only way I'd ever have anything to do with baseball was as a writer or a broadcaster. And guess what? <laughs> I wound up doing Dodger programming on uh, KABC for years. Anyway, this is my adventures in music. That was an adventure in baseball. Well, I was uh, still in the, the series of uh, children's books uh, for piano they had. I think it was called John Thompson, and they had different colors. There was a blue book and a red book and a green book, and I don't remember how many others. I was still in, I think, the first level book after about a year or two hours, supposedly practicing. And the worst thing in the world was for my mother to try to teach me herself because I could manipulate my mother like every kid can manipulate his mother. 
And I just wasn't happy with what I was doing. I knew I couldn't learn to play because my fingers wouldn't do what they were supposed to do. And at the age of eight, and I remember this very clearly, I quit playing the piano. Why? Well, I realized I wasn't going to be the next Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was writing symphonies when he was eight years old. And if I couldn't be the very, very best, I didn't want to do it. It was either the smartest or the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. You could argue it both ways. Um, I have a musical ear, as I told you. Um, I can play whole symphonies in my head whenever I want to, because I know what it's supposed to sound like. I've listened to so much music. But I don't read music, and I can't play music. So did I do the right thing when I decided my musical experiences were going to be as a listener rather than as a performer? Or could I have learned somehow to play at least well enough to become something like a musicologist or a conductor or something where you don't actually have to play the instrument? Conductors, of course, all know learn how to play instruments before they become conductors. I don't know if I ever could have gotten that far. So maybe I was right, but... Whatever it was, that's what I did. However, music also did something for me that I wasn't even aware of at the time. I was going to public school, and I was in the second grade, and my parents decided that they would never have a lot of money. So they decided to give me the best education they could possibly get me. And... Because of my musical ear, they were able to get me a partial scholarship to the University of Chicago Laboratory School, um, where I spent my rest of my grade school experiences from third grade on, plus high school, and then I went on to the college, and then I went on to the law school. So I spent something like 16 years, more than that maybe, on that University of Chicago campus from the time I was in third grade. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the musical background. Uh, in grade school, we used to have recognition sessions. You know, the, the teacher would play something on the piano or on a phonograph, and uh, the kids were supposed to recognize what it was. I won every one of those sessions except one. And I can still tell you what I ruined <laughs> to ruin my perfect record. I mixed up uh, the Schubert um, MoMA musical with the military march. <laughs> and it ruined my career. It simply ruined my career. Uh, in those days, though, I was listening to music seriously on whenever I got the chance. Um, what I remember was Saturdays. Uh, during the winter, my mother always put the Metropolitan Opera on every Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock. Texaco presents the Metropolitan Opera. Milton Cross was the announcer, and Boris Goldovsky was doing uh, analysis during the first intermission into analysis of the, of the work. I loved listening to it with her. And then afterwards, after the opera was over, about an hour or so after the Metropolitan ended, the NBC Symphony 
did a, an hour, an hour and a half concert from New York. And Toscanini was conducting sometimes. Uh, I remember his backup conductor was his student, Guido Contelli, who unfortunately was killed in a plane crash when he was something like 30 years old. Um, but I remember listening to those concerts with my mother. So I had a lot of music around me growing up all the time. I mentioned that I um, have no coordination. Well, I also have a couple of other disabilities uh, that prevented me from ever learning to play an instrument. One of those was in second grade. All, like, all this kind of stuff happened when I was about seven or eight years old. I was in school at uh, Kaminsky, Kaminsky, Kosminsky School in Chicago. That's what it was. And I was hanging up my coat, and I was a little late to get to my seat. And I came running around the corner of the row of seats where my seat was. And these were desks that were fixed to the floor. And they had metal bases and wooden tops. Well, I ran around that corner and I slipped. And my mouth hit the, the sharp corner of the metal. And a piece of metal went right through my lip. And to this day, I still have a scar on my chin, and a bump on my lip where that piece of metal went through. Uh, of course, I bled like a stuck pig, and they sent a school a patrol boy home with me to take me home, and I was covered with blood, and this poor kid, what a, what an awful thing to do to a kid to send him home with a kid who's bleeding like that. My mother took one look at me, and I think she almost fainted, but uh, I recovered, However, I still have that bump in the lip and a uh, permanently, what would you call it, uh, I don't have a normal mouth lip uh, so that I could never blow a wooded, wood, woodwind or a brass instrument so I don't have the, the lips to do it. And a couple of years after that, <laughs> and this is again a product of my, uh, shall we say, um, characteristic inability to do anything. And we were in a basketball game in a gym class, and of course the ball comes down and hits me on the little finger and permanently dislocated the finger on my left hand. Well, if you're going to be a string player, you need to be able to touch the strings and hold the strings with your left hand. So I couldn't be a, wood, uh, a brass player, a woodman player, or a string player. And since I couldn't play the piano, what's left? <laughs> Maybe I could have been a drummer or something. But that would have been too noisy. So anyway, that was the, um, the reason why I never, never was able to play music. And I still can't. I can fool around at the piano. Uh, if I know something, and of course I know a lot of pieces of music, I can pick it out on the piano as long as it's in C major. And so I'm pretty good at parties if you ever, if you ever have a need for a very simple-sounding pianist. But uh, other than that, uh, my entire musical world is as a listener. Not that that's a bad thing. Around this time, my parents took me to my very first opera. And, of course, I remember that, too. It was at the... Chicago Civic Opera House. Chicago didn't have an opera company in those days. This was about 1949. 
and if I remember correctly, it was the New York City Opera Company that was visiting. The opera was Aida. And my mother chose well, because Aida is a wonderful first opera for kids to see. It's got lots of uh, costumes and marching people and uh, beautiful big numbers and and, and uh, music that's almost unforgettable. Well, I never forgot it. The soprano in that performance was Herva Nelli, an Italian soprano who was one of Toscanini's favorite singers. And I have recordings of Toscanini conducting and Herva Nelli singing in one or two operas. I, remember that, I don't remember anybody else from the cast, but I remember her. And that was, I'm pretty sure, when I was eight years old. And my mother used to tell me stories about when she was growing up in Chicago, and Chicago did have an opera company back in the 20s, until the Depression. And she would tell me about all the great singers she heard, uh, Rosa Raiz and, um, oh, who was this, the mezzo-soprano, the great mezzo, I can't remember her name right away. But anyway, uh, and she would get me enthused about opera. And when I was about... 16, I think. I was still in high school. I bought myself a subscription to the opera, which by that time uh, had come back to Chicago. The Lyric Opera had been founded. And I bought a subscription in the last row (laughs) of the second balcony, about as far away as you can possibly get from the stage. And I'd go every Saturday night for six or eight weeks uh, in the fall by myself, Nobody went with me, and I loved the opera. And I sit there night after night, and just look down at the stage and listen to the music. Well, all right. After I gave up playing at the age of eight, I got away from doing anything other than listening to music, and I even got away from listening as much as I previously had. Between the ages of maybe eight and eleven. I was much less uh, tuned to music. Although I continued to be active in the house, when my mother would have Bill, the cellist, and my father, and they'd all get together and play the trio repertory, Mendelssohn's trios, Schubert trio, Beethoven trios, uh, the Dvorak trios, all of the great trios they would do. Guess what I did? I stood at the piano and turned the pages for my mother. Now, how could I do this if I couldn't really read music? Well, I could read enough to know when the notes were going up or the notes were going down. And so I could follow enough on the page to be able to turn the page, even if I couldn't, you know, couldn't really read what the notes were, I could follow the notes. And uh, apparently I got away with it because my mother... Let me keep doing it. I must have been doing it well enough for, to help her out when, you know, when she was playing. Uh, so I was always in touch with music. Also, about that same time, we went to Aspen for the first time. Now, Aspen, Colorado, was a silver mining town. And, and when uh, the boom years in Aspen were from 1880 to 1893 when silver was demonetized, uh, the people in Colorado called it the crime of 1893. 
Aspen became nearly a total ghost town until World War II, when the United States Army sent its ski troops to near Aspen to practice uh, skiing and preparing for invasions of places like uh, Norway they never did, uh, Japan they never did, but they they had ski troops getting ready. And during the war, Walter Pepke, who was either in that group or you know knew people about it, uh, realized that Aspen had a beautiful location and decided to create an Aspen Festival. And it turned out 1948, if I'm not mistaken, is the Goethe Centennial, 100th anniversary of the death, I believe, of uh, Goethe, the great poet. And the first Aspen Festival also included music. The Minneapolis Orchestra was invited to Aspen to play. Nathan Milstein was a soloist, and Dimitri Metropolis was the conductor. And they played the music in the tent. They had a big tent. They still have a tent. Uh, Aspen is today, of course, a tremendous center of music in the summer. The Aspen Festival has a school of music it's had for many years. Everybody in the music world goes to Aspen in the summer. And we still do. We haven't been there the last couple of years, but uh, I still love to go to Aspen in the summer and hear the music. Well, I was a kid of about eight years old, and we were in Denver visiting my grandparents. And my mother says, I want to go to Aspen. My grandmother, who was not musical and not much interested in anything, said, what do you want to go to Aspen for? It's a ghost town. It's a dump. There's nothing there. You don't want to go there. My mother said, I want to go to Aspen. She knew about the uh, Centennial and the music. So my father borrowed a car from one of his brothers, and the three of us went to Aspen. Aspen is not that easy to get to, and especially it wasn't then. Um, the only road into Aspen at that time that was paved was uh, the highway from Glenwood Springs. And that meant you had to go 185 miles from Denver to Glenwood and then double back 50 miles to Aspen. We didn't have any money either. <laughs> My father wasn't uh, wasn't selling fenders in those days. So when we got to Aspen, we found that there was one hotel in town, the Hotel Jerome, which had been there since the silver mining days. And it was the only hotel, the only hotel in town. And there was one place to eat in town, a bakery. <laughs> that was the extent of what there was in Aspen. But we went to the concert, and we heard Metropolis conduct, and Milstein played the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with the Minnesota Orchestra. And I have never forgotten that. I was eight years old, or seven years old. I might have been seven years old. Seven or eight. What I remember most, most about the concert was, of course, the, the, the music. I knew the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto by that time. It was familiar to me. But what I remember so clearly was Dimitri Metropolis, the conductor, wearing tennis shoes and leaping up and down in the uh, tent where the music was being played. It was a tremendous impression uh, to see the conductor wearing tennis shoes and jumping, on the, jumping up onto the podium. Uh, it made music more human somehow, more realistic. And Milstein, of course, was a great violinist, and uh, that was a wonderful performance. 
We couldn't stay in Aspen, though, that night because there was no place to stay. We couldn't afford the Jerome, which was charging something like $20 a night. And the $20 a night in um, 1948 or 49 was something like maybe $200 a night now. So my father gets in the car. We drove the other road from Aspen through to uh, over Independence Pass, 10,000 feet high, dirt road in the middle of the night, and my father drove it, and we wound up in Twin Lakes, Colorado, where there was a resort. And I remember, I remember so clearly going to bed in this cold night. It was the nights, in, even in the summer, get cold in the Rockies. And going to bed in this wonderfully warm, cozy inn, I guess it was, in Twin Lakes, Colorado, at the end of one of the most memorable days in my life. All right. Those were some of the some of the uh, musical experiences I had as a kid. And then for about three years, as I mentioned, I wasn't really into music very much. But I began watching television at that time. You know, television was fairly new. And I started watching the episodes of Victory at Sea. Uh, anybody out there ever hear Victory at Sea or see Victory at Sea? 26 episodes with music by Richard Rogers, uh, arranged by Robert Russell Bennett for orchestra. And I was fascinated by the music in Victory at Sea. And it got me to start listening to other music. Um, my, my parents used to go out on Friday nights, and my uncle would come and babysit. And my uncle liked boxing. So after dinner, my parents would go out. My uncle would put the TV set on. and We'd watch NBC. Um, and they had a program called The Big Story, which was about uh, newspaper stories and reporters, real, real stories. The theme music from that fascinated me. And I didn't know what it was at the time, but of course I have since realized what it was. It was Ein Heldenleben by Richard Strauss. And I got fascinated by that and the music from Victory at Sea. And then when the boxing matches came on, my uncle would watch the boxing matches. I'd watch with him and then uh, go to sleep. That was the end of the evening. But you know, pieces of music like that kept filtering through to me for one way, one way or another, even though I wasn't really paying a lot of attention all the time. That went on for maybe three years or so, until I was about 11 or maybe 12 years old. And by that time, we had a tape recorder, and I had an FM radio. There is today in Chicago a radio station that at that time went on the air, I think in the very late 40s, WFMT, Chicago's Fine Arts Station, they called it. At that time, it was a private station. It was run by a, a husband and wife team, and they had about four employees, and they did everything themselves, and they played classical music. And I became WFMT's most devoted 12-year-old listener. Um, listened every day, hours and hours a day. I'd come home from school, I'd walk home from school about 3.30, I'd get home, go to my room, close the door, 
turn on the radio and play the rest of the afternoon and listen to the music with my trains, my uh, HL gauge trains, every afternoon. And then and, uh, this went on for years. And I began to listen to not only all of the standard repertory that WFMT was playing, but also some of the less standard things that they were playing. And when I was about 12 or 13, this had been going on for a couple of years, I began to realize that I'd heard more pieces of music than my parents knew. They played music, but they didn't know a lot of the music that they didn't play. And I was listening to things like uh, Zoltan Kodai. Uh, they had never, my mother had never heard of Zoltan Kodai. <laughs> uh, so I began to realize that I was learning an enormous amount of music in my head just from listening hours and hours and hours a day. Well, uh, this went on for a few years, as I mentioned, and then I got my first uh, opera, opera subscription. And then uh, I graduated from high school. I was just barely 17. And that summer, uh, I was dating a very beautiful, very personable, very delightful girl, and we used to go to Grant Park for free concerts. Now, in Grant Park, you could sit on benches, but if you were really, um, really with it, uh, you could lie on the ground on a blanket and, you know, and uh, cover yourself up and listen to the music on the grass. And we did. <laughs> and I remember lying on the grass and listening to the music with her. And, of course, we were you know, playing around a little bit. And I watched the, the uh, electric signs on Michigan Avenue. There was the flying red horse of mobile gas, and the shell, seashell would light up. And uh, remember it like it was yesterday. Um, and this, is, this was uh, a time when I was pretty well into music again. She tells me today that uh, I used to have her over to my house and play recordings for her. She was the one who really had a musical education more than I did. She went to the National Music Camp in Interlochen, Michigan. And boy, was that impressive to me. I thought, uh, oh my God, she's, she really knows something. So after that summer, we broke up. Didn't see each other, didn't communicate in any way. Both married other people. 43 years later, <laughs> We got together again, and we're still together now. Anyway, college years then. Um, lots of interesting things happened then. One thing that happened was the University of Chicago has a student radio station. In those days, it was not heard on the air. It was heard in the dorms by what they called carrier wire. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to be on radio. The only thing I ever really wanted to do as a career, all my life from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to be on radio. I loved radio. I still love radio. And my first radio performances, if you might call them that, I got myself on the air doing a one-hour morning show on Thursdays on the uh, carrier station. It was on from, I think, 8 to 9, and I was totally in charge. I planned the music, 
and I did the announcing, and I told the musical stories, whatever. And that was the beginning of my radio career. Um, it was, of course, unpaid, and, of course, it was amateur, and it wasn't heard on the air, but it was still being in front of a microphone. And if you ever wanted to get into broadcasting, I don't know how you would do it today. The way I did it, and the way many people I knew did it, was get in front of a microphone and be on the air somehow, somewhere, even if it's carrier broadcast. Well, that was the beginning, of my, as I say, of my radio career. Did that for a few months, and then later on in my uh, college career, as a two years later as a junior, I took a class called Humanities Three, and they offered several variants of it. Uh, one was an art variant. Uh, one was a I don't know a literature variant. I took the music variant, and I had a wonderful professor whose name was Marshall Bialowski. I have never heard from him again. I don't know what ever happened to him. He was a composer and a musician and a, just a terrific teacher. And we took, I took that class with him, and we studied somebody, you know, music that I had never even heard of. We studied Charles Ives. This was uh, like three years after Charles Ives died, and nobody took him seriously. Nobody, in those days, nobody ever heard of Charles Ives. Today, he's regarded as one of the greatest American composers. He was a very strange guy. Um, music was not his profession either. He was an insurance man. <laughs> he spent his business career selling insurance and composed on the side. His father had been a bandmaster in the Civil War. He was born about 1870-something, 1872-something like that. And his father encouraged him not to be held back by the musical establishment, by the, you know, the rules of composition, whatever. He said, do what you feel. Write what you feel. And Charles Ives experimented with things like um, two orchestras playing different music at the same time. Uh, he brought American folk tunes into classical music. He wrote pieces based on uh, sites in New England, three places in New England, one of his uh, well-known pieces. He wrote symphonies. He wrote sonatas. He wrote choral music. Years and years later, I bought a whole item, a whole album, all the choral music of Charles Ives. Wonderful stuff. Wonderful composer. And I will give you a puzzler here. If anybody gets this, I will be flabbergasted. What you know, Charles Ives is a musician, right? What was his wife's name? Nobody in the world is going to know this unless they know who Charles Ives was. He married a woman named Harmony. <laughs> Can you imagine a composer's wife named Harmony? Uh, she was a remarkable person in her own right. Uh, her father was Joseph Twitchell, who was a, probably the most important minister in Connecticut, Mark Twain's best friend and pastor, and uh, Harmony Ives was uh, Charles Ives' wife for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever it was. Anyway, getting back to music variant, um, 
and Marshall Bielowski. Not only did he teach us in class, but he came up with wonderful ideas as to how to teach kids who didn't necessarily have a musical background in the sense that they weren't, weren't able to play. We had a couple of people in the class who were good musicians. We had one woman who um, I still see every once in a while who was a, a singer. And she was very good, good enough to be in shows. Anyway, he gave us for a final exam, the greatest final exam in the history of final exams. Uh, the New York Opera was in town, and they were performing three operas at the at the Opera House. Not not the Lyric, but at the Opera House. Our final assignment in that class was to go to the opera three nights in a row and write criticisms of the performances. Fabulous, fabulous assignment. One of those three operas was the The Harvest by Vittorio Giannini. Uh, was a very successful songwriter, but never was really successful in writing operas. The harvest came and the harvest went. The second of those ar- uh, those three operas was Susanna by Carlisle Floyd. Carlisle Floyd is still alive. Susanna still gets performed very fairly frequently. Um, very <laughs> very frequently. 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 Uh, Susanna is based on a biblical story of Susanna and the elders, but he updated it to Tennessee about the turn of the century. And I remember uh, seeing that and going home and writing about that. But the piece de résistance, the the great piece, was the Ballad of Baby Doe. I had never heard of Baby Doe Tabor. I had never heard of Douglas Moore, the composer. I had never heard of John Latouche, the librettist, and I had never heard of the leading singer, somebody by the name of Sills. Um, this was Beverly Sills. And I fell in love with that opera the first time I heard it. To this day, it is still my favorite American opera. I think the greatest American opera with hardly any competition except Porky and Bess by Gershwin. Those two are, for my money, the two great American operas. Baby Doe is based on a true story. Uh, Baby Doe, whose real name was Elizabeth McCourt Doe Tabor. Uh, she was born in McCourt in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, <laughs> Irish, uh, Irish family. And when I heard years, you know, a few years ago, Frank McCourt, the author was New York New York school teacher for many years, wrote a couple of books and became famous as an author. And I met him and I had him on the air. And I asked him, you know, McCourt, was there any possibility that you were related to Baby Doe? And he said, "Yep, she was, she was a couple of generations um, older, but uh, she was part of his family. She was a McCourt from Oshkosh, Wisconsin." Anyway. Baby Doe comes to Colorado with her husband, Harvey, who she married back in Oshkosh. Harvey was sent to Colorado by his father to take care of the family investments there. 
And Baby Doe wasn't very happy with Harvey, and she wasn't very happy with, um, where was it, uh, Central City, Colorado. And so she cast loose, she uh, divorced Harvey, and she moved down to Leadville, Colorado, the boom town of all boom towns in the 1880s, looking for um, good times and a better future. And she arranged to meet Horace Austin Warner Tabor, 30 years older than her, married for over 20 years to the same woman. Uh, Augusta was his wife, the richest man in Colorado. This was for Baby Doe. <laughs> she managed to get Horace on her, um, shall we say, get her hooks into him, and he divorced Augusta, which was a horrible scandal in those days because men 60 years old weren't supposed to divorce their wives for young wives. And he married Baby Doe in Washington, D.C., because he had been appointed senator to fill an unexpired term. And for a couple of months was a U.S. senator. And the president of the United States attended the wedding. That's how important Horace Tabor was. None of the Colorado women uh, the society would have anything to do with Baby Doe. When her carriage came down the street, they turned their heads away. They'd pull the window shutters down in the carriage so that they wouldn't have to look at her. Um, she was a total scandal. And didn't stop her from staying with Horace when he lost all his money. He went broke in the panic of 93, the silver panic. And for the last few years of his life, he was really penniless. His friends who had political, uh, of course, had political connections. He had been a senator. He got some friends, and they got him a sinecure as postmaster of Denver. And for the last three or four years of his life, he lived on his salary as postmaster of Denver. But he still owned a couple of properties in Leadville, one of which was a mine called the Matchless. The Matchless mine had been his biggest payday, huge producer, and after the silver panic, it was worthless, but he held on to it, and according to the legend, he told Baby Doe, after I'm gone, hold on to the matchless mine, it'll make millions again. The opera tells the story of Horace and Baby Doe and how they lived together, the scandal involving the divorce, and the theme of the opera is nothing matters, nothing lasts except love. And in the case of Horace and Baby Doe, it was true. He lost all his money. He lost all his political influence. She lost everybody in her family. One of her children ran away and was never heard of again. The other one, she refused to recognize uh, what really happened to her. She said she's in a convent. Actually, she was a prostitute and was killed in a fire. Uh, they had lost everything except she when. When Horace died in 1899, she held on to the matchless mine by hook or by crook, even though she had no money. She lived in a cabin at the mine, and 36 years later, she froze to death in that cabin. What a story. Tremendous story. And it has everything. The music is by Douglas Moore, who taught music at Princeton University, and was very interested in American history, American stories. He wrote... Uh, 
music about P.T. Barnum, a number of other characters. Baby Doe is his masterpiece. And it is a masterpiece. It is a fabulously good opera. If you've never heard Baby Doe, go out and get a recording of it. It's been recorded two or three times. Uh, the original recording has, if I'm not mistaken, um, let's see, uh, what, what was her name? Francis Bible, I think, was Augusta Tabor. Walter Castle played uh, Horace Tabor and Beverly Sills in her signature opera, the opera she made her career in as Baby Doe. She didn't create Baby Doe. She wasn't the first Baby Doe. But it was the role that she took on when she was still a young singer, and it made her famous, and she made it famous. Years later, I had interviewed Beverly Sills, too, and uh, talked about Baby Doe with her. And she, what a wonderful lady she was. You know, after she uh, retired from singing, she became a fundraiser and executive and I think it had a lot to do with keeping the New York City Opera Company going as long as it did. All right, more adventures in music. I'm not done yet. <laughs> also that year, in uh, that wonderful class in uh, music criticism, uh, we studied Mahler's Second Symphony. To this day, I still think the Second Symphony is the best thing Mahler ever wrote. And one of the best papers I ever wrote in college, I wrote about that symphony. Now, of course, I couldn't read music, and I didn't know anything about harmony, key structure, or anything like that, but I listened to the music. And I came up with an a, a essay about the fourth movement of the Mahler Ninth. And Professor Bialowski returned it to me, and I'll never forget what he wrote. He wrote on it, a fitting climax to your semester, A+. Plus. You think that didn't make me feel great? Well, A+. Plus. And I didn't even know how to write, how to read music. Well, all right. By this time, of course, music is a huge part of my life. In 1962, when I went to Europe for the first time, of course, I wanted to uh, see some of the music in Europe. This was uh, in, let's see, July, June and July, June and July, 1962, and I got to Vienna. Now, I was traveling on a Eurail Pass, which means, you know, you can take any train in, uh, in on the continent and ride first class for a hundred and something dollars uh, for a month. So I didn't stay in rooms every night to save money. I wouldn't take a hotel room. I'd take a train. <laughs> and I didn't care whether it was going any, anywhere it was going. I just woke up the next morning wherever I was. I had a room in Vienna, though. Uh, and I kept it because it was cheap, very cheap, staying on the top floor of about a six-floor six walk-up or something like that. And I see uh, in the newspaper that a couple of days later is going to be the opening day of the great Salzburg Festival of Music. Salzburg Festival is probably the number one festival in Europe at that time, maybe still. And if it isn't number one, it's number one or two or three. Salzburg, people plan for years how to get tickets. And opening night of Salzburg is probably the hardest ticket to get in Europe. I decided I was going to take the train to Salzburg and I'd commute between Vienna and Salzburg. I'd uh, you know, come home uh, on a night train from Salzburg 
and stay in Vienna during the day and then go back to Salzburg again at night and come back on the night train because that way I didn't have to pay another hotel bill. So I decided I was going to get to Salzburg and I was going to go to the Salzburg Festival. What's more, I was going to go on opening day the Salzburg Festival. You know how crazy this was? Nobody does this. It walks into the opening night of the Salzburg Festival. Well, I planned it out like a military campaign. How am I going to get into the Salzburg Festival on opening night? I haven't got any money. I can't pay $200 a ticket or whatever. I'll go to the Salzburg Mozarteum, the great museum there, during the day, and I'll find a rich American with an extra ticket. <laughs> well, I showed up at the museum, and I, sure enough, met an American family, and they uh, said they had they didn't know if they had an exit ticket or not. It depended on whether somebody in the family was going to go or not. But I should meet them in the lobby before the concert. And if they had an extra ticket, they'd give it to me. I said, you're on. So I go um, you know, go to dinner and come back. I go to the, to the concert hall. It's about 7.30 or 7 o'clock. The concert's supposed to be at 8 o'clock or 8.30. And I meet my family, and they said, well, sorry, we don't have an extra ticket. The other person's coming to the, the performance. I said, well, thank you very much. But, but, but did I leave? No. I hung around, you know, in front of the uh, ticket windows. And I have a theater background. When I was in college, I did a lot of theater work. So I was aware of the fact that if you can... Uh, pay the top price, you can get into almost anything if you are ready and waiting when they put the house seats that are reserved for late-coming VIPs. There are always some house seats available. And uh, if you pay for them and you're there at the right time, you can pick one up. Well, I was figuring I can't really afford to pay for it, but I'll see what I could do. Meanwhile, I'm standing around the lobby and I hear a woman say, but I only have one. <laughs> Guess who the next person I talked to was? You have an extra ticket? You have one ticket? She said, yeah. I said, how much? She says, oh, whatever it was, 40, 40 dinar or krona or whatever it was. Um, 40 marks maybe? I don't know. Anyway, I had, that was about $20. And I gave her the money, and there I was. Opening night of the Salzburg Festival, Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro with Dietrich Fischer Dieskau, and I got there. Triumph of my life. <laughs> Adventures in music, well, that was one. Wow. Um, other adventures in music that I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to talk about some favorite composers and compositions and less favorite composers and compositions. In 1962 with Salzburg, about 30 years later, I was uh, married, of course, and, uh, on radio, and I had uh, four stepchildren, and at that time I uh, hadn't yet had a natural child. One of my stepchildren was my stepson, who showed remarkable musical talent. He had nothing at all to do with music until he was about 14 years old. And then he started taking piano lessons on his own. Unbelievable. And he got really pretty good. When he was 17 or 18, uh, his college 
offered a program where you could go to London for a semester or two semesters, whatever it was. I think it was a year. Um, and he volunteered to spend a year in London, and they took him. They selected him. He gets to London, and he's going to Regent's College in the city of London. First day there, somebody comes up and, and offers anybody here with a musical background who would like to study at the Royal Conservatory. And my stepson says, yeah, me. <laughs> they took him. Here he is, my stepson, who had no musical ability whatsoever, interest in music whatsoever, four years before, accepted at the Royal Conservatory of Music. And that was, that's tremendous. I mean, you just, this doesn't happen. Not only did they accept him, he was good. And he began writing music. He met a young lady who was a flutist. She was an American from Pittsburgh. And he was nuts about her, head over heels crazy about her. Comes Christmas time, and he proposed to her. He's still about 18 years old. She can't be much older. Uh, she said, I'm going to go back to America and talk to my parents, and then we'll see. Uh, Chris said, well, I can't afford to go back. I don't have any money. So he stayed with friends in England, and she got on the plane to America. That night, they'd all had a party the night before. That night, uh, my stepson was in the north of England with some whole whole group of friends from the college and the Royal Conservatory. And they put the television set on. You can, you're not going to believe it. The flight that she was on, that her friends were on, a whole bunch of his friends, all Americans going back home, was Pan Am 103. And they were watching when it went down over Lockerbie. It changed his entire life. He was he never got over the stress that that caused. For a couple of weeks, he was just inconsolable. Fortunately, I had friends in England, and I called them and asked if they would take him in, you know, because you know, this was uh, how many thousand miles away? And if they would take him in until school started again, and they did. And he was so cut up, he they were, he was going to go to Lockerbie. He wanted to go to Lockerbie. And uh, what was in Lockerbie? The, I don't know if there was anything left of the plane that he could have seen. But they told him, no, you, you, know, you can't go there. You shouldn't go there. Don't go there. And they took him in. After about a month of the second semester, he was still disconsolate, and he called home. And I said, well, if you want, uh, your mom will come over, or I'll come over, whoever you want. He said, I want you to come. So I took a couple of weeks off from the radio station, got on a plane, and went to England, and spent a week in England with my stepson. And... Uh, during the day, he was having classes, and I would go sightseeing, and then we'd meet in the evening and go to a concert or a uh, play or something. One night, we're supposed to go to Don Giovanni at the Royal Opera, Covent Garden. And we get there, we've got the seats, we've got the tickets, and it's about half an hour or so before the performance is beginning. And somebody comes out on stage and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have terrible news. 
we've had an awful accident backstage, and one of our stagehands was killed. I'm sorry to tell you that tonight's performance has been canceled. So we never got to hear Don Giovanni at Covent Garden. It was the non-Don Giovanni. (laughs) And we went to a play instead, but it wasn't the same. Anyway, that's the only time that's ever happened to me, and I hope it never happens again. Oh, what more more musical episodes do I have? Oh, yes, I was talking about Baby Doe. When I was in Madison, Wisconsin, I was working on the radio in Madison, going to graduate school, the Madison Opera Company staged Baby Doe. And who did they invite but Douglas Moore, the composer, to come to the performance? And I got to meet him. One, another one of the great days of my life. Douglas Moore was the most unassuming sweetest guy you'll ever meet. You would never guess that this man was a great musician and a great composer. You'd think he was uh, somebody's grandfather, but that was about the extent of it. And uh, This is the creator of a, of a great work, a truly great work. Never got over meeting him. I had him sign the program, and I've still got it. Uh, that was about 19, what was it, Madison? About 1969 or maybe it's 1970, something like that, before I came to L.A. All right. Those are some of my adventures. I've had many more. Um, for a while, I was a music critic. And going back to that class in music criticism, I was working for a classical station, and they had me do a long weekend show, and I started recording uh, reviews. I'd go to the L.A. Philharmonic, and I'd go to the, whatever else was on, and uh, write re- write reviews, record them, and they went on the air on the classical station. So um, I started music criticism, and I actually did music criticism for a while. All right. That, that's a good lead into some of my favorite musicians, composers, least favorites, uh, whatever. My favorite ten, the top ten composers. Uh, this is subject to change, but I think basically these are the these are the ones who I most admire and whose music I most want to hear. Start with Joseph Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, of course, Franz Schubert, who I think was a much greater composer than people give him credit for. Brahms, of course. Anton Bruckner, I think the greatest of the late romantics. Dvorak, the most underrated great composer I know. Uh, I can't believe that he's not more recognized than he is. Of course he's recognized, but he deserves far more recognition than he gets. His music is absolutely fabulous. And he wrote tremendous amounts of wonderful music. His chamber music reams and reams of wonderful chamber music. I don't know how often it all gets played in this country. He wrote ten operas, only one of which is ever heard in this country. Uh, Rachel and I went to hear it two weeks ago in Chicago. I'd been waiting all my life to hear Dvorak's Rusalka, and it was worth the wait to hear it. Beautiful, beautiful opera, beautiful production. And then, of course, 
of Wagner and Giuseppe Verdi. Verdi is in some ways my favorite composer of all time, although I think there's a race with Mozart and Beethoven and a few others. But the thing about Verdi that's so impressive to me is what I talked about the last time I taught one of these musical things. He kept getting better and better and better. The older he got, the better he got. He never, ever took a step backwards. He's always doing new things, improving, and uh, doing things in, in new directions. And uh, wound up with writing his greatest works when he was in his 70s. All right. Composers I can't stand. <laughs> there are two on this list. One of them is Franz Liszt. Uh, Liszt was the musical, what would you, the rock star of the, of Europe in uh, his time. Uh, women would die to get a piece of his hair. They'd tear his hair if they could you know, get a chance to touch him. Um, Blood and Guts, a uh, fiery pianist, wrote um, lots of bombastic pieces of music. It was Wagner's father-in-law, as a matter of fact, although they didn't always get along. But anyway, Liszt's music, with the exception of one piece, the B minor sonata, I just can't listen to it. <laughs> it's just, it's all bombast and no, and no content. The other one is a composer I used to like. Richard Strauss. He was called Richard II after Richard Wagner was Richard I. And Richard Strauss lived a very long time, composing uh, in the 1880s, and he lived until after World War II. And he's the opposite of Verdi. The older he got, the worse he got, to the point where, to me, Strauss's music is empty. It's all tricks and no sincerity. Very much like the man who stayed in Germany and uh, went along with the Nazis, had no compunctions about it. He says, I'm apolitical. Well, how, do, how can you be apolitical when your country is murdering people wholesale? And don't tell me you didn't know about it. Uh, he was... Uh, in a position to know much more than uh, the average person. And uh, I can't stand him. I, I, I used to like some of his music. Einhelden Leben, I mentioned before, is still attractive in some ways. But most of Strauss's music leaves me now with a, just an ugly feeling. I just can't stand him. Uh... Who's overrated and underrated? Well, I mentioned one of the most underrated composers, Dvorak. Another one who I feel is, to me, is very much underrated is Robert Schumann. I've been listening to a lot of Schumann's music in the last few years, and he had the reputation of not being a very good uh, orchestrator, not being able to um, put big pieces together. I don't agree. I I think Schumann is very much worth listening to, and uh, I'm, the more I hear of him, the better I like him. That's also true of the most underrated composer of all time, probably, Franz Schubert. Schubert is fabulous because of his songs, and everybody knows Schubert was a great writer of songs, 
but he was a great writer of everything else, too. Um, and his Ninth Symphony, the Great C Major, I think is probably my favorite symphony in, in the whole the whole repertory. I never get tired of it because every time I listen to it, I find something new in it that uh, that I missed sometime before. Uh, Schubert only lived to be 31 years old. Can you imagine? Mozart died at 35. Schubert only lived to be 31. And in that time, he produced so many great works. We're going to talk about chamber music. Well, we just heard the Trout Quintet last week. Uh, um, he's just fabulous. Overrated? Well, my nominee for the most overrated composer these days is Gustav Mahler. I mentioned the Mahler Second Symphony and that it's a great work. It is. But around the Third Symphony, he ran out of ideas. And all the rest of his works all sound alike to me. Um, and also, Mahler had one great flaw as a composer. He didn't know when to stop. Somewhere in the Sherlock Holmes stories, Holmes says of um, a character, I think it was uh, Josiah Amberley, he had lacked the one great talent that every artist must have, the knowledge of when to stop. And Mahler didn't have it. To me, Mahler would be so much better if he had been so much shorter, <laughs> if he hadn't been so verbose and so repetitive. And I can't listen to most of the Mahler symphonies comfortably anymore. They're just too overdone. The second? No, I don't feel that way about the second. But uh, the later symphonies are over the top. They're just too much. So those are a few of uh, few things of, uh, about music that I have to say. And uh, I've been talking, I think, nonstop for 70 minutes. <laughs> Anybody want to stop me? Uh, I'll be happy to answer questions or talk about something else. Okay, let's see if we have any questions from our, from our audience. Uh, what a, I hope I what a wonderful life death. you've led. Okay, who's first for a question? Well, this is Ginny, and I just okay. want to thank you. Okay, Yeah, I just want to thank you so much for what a fascinating... Oh, had, I can't hear a word of this, so you have to... wants to thank you so much. This is Jenny. Thank you for sharing what, uh, you know, what a fabulous um, life and fabulous experiences. Um, I think it's really inspiring to me um, that even though you couldn't play music and you couldn't read notes, you still developed such a musical sense and such a sense of taste. You know, and um, I'm, I hope it's not too late for me to do that. And I also wanted to ask you if you ever tried your hand at writing lyrics. Okay. Okay, you're going to have to repeat that, Bob, because I can't. Well, she, she's just amazed that although you didn't play music, that you learned it, you know, and everything. And have you ever tried your hand at writing lyrics? And she's very complimentary to you. Uh, what about no, lyrics? I never have. Um, I never was... Uh, you know, I never felt that I could do that. I never felt I really wanted to. Um, my talents, I think, are more uh, towards um, writing uh, essays and, uh, you know, writing criticism and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think I'm. Uh, I don't think I'm a creative writer in the sense of writing lyrics. 
But I remember when you were a music critic, and you're talking to a layman here, do you, do you criticize the plot, the 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 opera, well, how they pose downstage, or what did you do? what would you do when you criticize? I don't believe in in writing. Uh, this was uh, this was good. This was bad. I think what the critic is really there for is to get people to understand ah. the work and the, and the musician. Why should I go hear this? That's the question I, oh. that I would always ask myself. If I'm writing for an audience or I'm doing reviews for an audience, I want to say, why should you go here and spend your money to listen to this or hear this or see this? And so consequently, I tend to... Uh, emphasize the values that I find in a piece of music and the, uh, the values of the, the uh, way the, the performance is, is conducted. There are so many wonderful musicians today. It's overwhelming. They're, they're turning them out on the assembly line. Thousands of great young artists are coming out of conservatories all over the world. You know, now we have tremendous number of players from Asia who are just terrific. Yeah. We haven't gotten to the point where an Asian composer breaks into the uh, roster of many much-performed uh, composers yet, but that's only a matter of time. Wow. Okay, any other questions? Yes, Ira, this may be a little bit of field, but uh, I would like to ask what your uh, how you feel that the music class is being kind of dropped or diminished in the school system has uh, affected the you know ch- children that are being educated today. It seems that there's a lack of understanding among a lot of kids about music and about anything going on in the musical era. That was the music classes that are being dropped by the schools. and feels that the education of our young people toward music is just nil. What do you think of that? Okay, now, uh, what is the question here? The question is that, people, that edu- music has been dropped in many of the schools in our country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How are kids going to get educated to music? That's a terrible thing to do, you know. Um, I'd rather have... You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see them drop gym classes and yes. spend yeah. the time teaching music. And yes, I agree. I think the biggest waste in school is gym. <laughs> I've hated it ever since there was such a thing as a gym class. Uh, to me, that was absolutely... First of all, it was something I couldn't do. <laughs> Secondly, <laughs> me either. what value has it got to an education, really? Yeah. Really, what value does it have? And they can walk to school and get exercise. There's all kinds of ways to get exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? People aren't going to like me for saying that, but uh, <laughs> I think it ought to be an elective. It ought to be yeah. the, something that kids do because they want to. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any reason why kids should be made to suffer. Uh, and it is suffering if you're not athletic, especially if you're a boy. I don't know how it is for girls. But if you're a boy and you're not athletic and you're stuck in a gym class and made fun of, it's no fun. No, it isn't. No. Really not. No. No. Any other questions, please? Well, Ira, we want to thank you so very much. Again, an outstanding presentation. 
and I hope sometime when, when you you get to some American composers, I don't know how far if we do a part three, we'll talk. But like I think of Gershwin and those guys, John Williams, do they count? You know, are they composers? And uh, I like them. That's why I go to Hollywood Bowl sometimes. But anyway, uh, I, I, uh, go ahead. I think um, I wanted to hear what your reaction was tonight, and of course um, we'll talk about it later. Okay, and that was great, and, and you really showed us another part of your great life, and we thank you very, very much. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks. Thank you, Ira. Okay. Thank right. you, everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.